Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a 15-month-old girl with respiratory distress and upper respiratory tract infection. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A 15-month-old female presents to the emergency department with cough, runny nose, and increased work of breathing. Her mother states that the patient has had these symptoms for the past three days. However, her work of breathing has progressively gotten worse. The patient has had two fevers during this course, with the highest being 101 degrees Fahrenheit. She says that her three-year-old cousin, who she visited for the holidays, had similar symptoms. Mother notes decreased oral intake, as well as wet diapers, and the patient presented to the emergency department with the following vital signs. Temperature of 38.5 centigrade, heart rate of 155, blood pressure 70 over 80 with a mean arterial pressure of 50, respiratory rate of 48, and pulse ox 92% on room air. The patient on exam was noted to be tachypnic with abdominal retractions, grunting, and nasal flaring. The patient was nasally suctioned and initiated on 12 liters, 40% of high-flow nasal cannula. The patient was then transferred to the pediatric ICU for further management. So Pradeep, can you help summarize some key portions of this case? This patient has increased work of breathing, indicating respiratory distress. She has a prodrome of symptoms that worsen prior to presentation. She also has a sick contact all of which bring up the concern for acute respiratory distress or failure requiring non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in the form of high-flow nasal cannula. So let's transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. Rahul, what are some of the key features in this child who presents with respiratory distress and upper respiratory tract infection symptoms? So Pradeep, this is a pretty mundane case. But what I do want to bring up is the diagnosis of bronchiolitis. Usually children under the age of two with bronchiolitis will present with cough, respiratory distress, and crackles on lung exam. The crackles actually indicate atelectatic alveoli that are filled with fluid, which occurs due to the inflammatory process in the lung that is triggered by the respiratory viruses. Respiratory distress, increased work of breathing, increased respiratory rate, and issues with oxygenation can all occur rapidly and can be intermittent, especially when children are going to be crying, coughing, or are agitated. Excellent. Rahul, are there some red flag symptoms on physical exam in this child with acute respiratory distress, which you could highlight to our audience? Absolutely. This is a really good question. And we really want to convey to you all is that there is a distinction between respiratory distress and respiratory failure. Children with respiratory failure, in our case, may have issues with oxygenation or ventilation, as well as increased work of breathing that necessitates higher levels of respiratory support, in this case being high-flow nasal cannula. So if we look at a 2003 Journal of Pediatric Study, infants who were most severely affected with bronchiolitis had the following risk factors. They were born premature, they were young, less than 12 weeks of age, or they had an underlying cardiopulmonary disease or immunodeficiency. 
These children are at risk for apnea and respiratory failure, which may require escalation to mechanical ventilation. Finally, infants with bronchiolitis may actually have difficulty maintaining adequate hydration because of increased fluid needs and increased metabolic demand. Remember, these children will have increased insensible losses due to fever as well as tachypnea and the prodrome being a decreased oral intake related to their systemic illnesses. To continue with our case, the patient's labs were consistent with mild hypernatremia. She had a sodium of 149. All other electrolytes were within normal limits. The patient had a respiratory viral panel, uh, which was positive for rhinoentro as well as RSV. Her COVID PCR was negative. A chest radiograph was performed and showed alveolar airspace disease, which was consistent with pneumonia. I would like to highlight an important point. With the exception of otitis media, secondary bacterial infection is uncommon among infants and children with bronchiolitis. In a nine-year prospective study of 565 children less than the age of three hospitalized with documented RSV infection published in the Journal of Pediatrics, subsequent bacterial pneumonia was present in only 0.9% of these children. Rahul, that's a great point. The risk of secondary bacterial pneumonia is increased among children who require admission to the intensive care unit, particularly those who require mechanical ventilation. So to summarize, what we have here is a 15-month-old girl who presented with upper respiratory tract symptoms and respiratory distress and is then admitted to the PQ with rhinoentro and RSV bronchiolitis with concurrent community-acquired pneumonia. We would like to focus the rest of this podcast discussing the use of high-flow nasal cannula, its principles of action, and the data surrounding its use in the PQ. Before we get into this topic, let's start with a simple multiple-choice question. A 13-month-old ex-34-week infant presents to the emergency department with increased work of breathing, tachypnea, and fever. The patient is on home 1 8 liter low-flow nasal cannula and has no echocardiographic evidence of pulmonary hypertension on prior follow-up. High-flow nasal cannula is initiated at 1.5 liters per kilo of flow. Which of the following responses best describes the mechanism of action of high-flow nasal cannula? A, increased nasopharyngeal dead space. B, decreased humidification of gas. C, negative distending pressure. Or D, reduction in upper airway resistance. Rahul, this is an excellent question. And I'd like to ask this question to residents uh, on rounds very frequently. The correct answer here is D, a reduction in upper airway resistance. By providing gas flows that match or exceed Spontaneous inspiratory flow rates, high-flow nasal cannula minimizes inspiratory resistance across the nasopharynx. The resultant reduction in the work of breathing has been demonstrated in studies in neonates and infants by measuring diaphragmatic electrical activity and respiratory plethysmography. Rahul, what does the literature say regarding positive distending pressure with use of high-flow nasal cannula? So, Pradeep, the data is definitely mixed. And I think that if you surveyed intensivists that are practicing, I would presume that there would be a mixed response or a little bit of a debate. The data overall leans towards 
hypho-nasal cannula not providing clinically significant positive end expiratory pressure or PEEP. In a study of infants with bronchiolitis published in 2013 in intensive care medicine, a flow rate of two liters per kilo per minute resulted in a mean pharyngeal pressure of greater than four centimeters of water as measured by transesophageal probes and the improvement in breathing. Subsequent studies have documented a difference in increased pharyngeal pressure during high flow nasal cannula when the mouth is closed compared to when it's open. So if you are going to use high flow nasal cannula to promote positive distending pressure, concurrent use of a pacifier, especially in these young neonates, may be helpful in achieving the full benefit of high flow nasal cannula. Let's go ahead and summarize key principles of how high flow nasal cannula works. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and review some key respiratory physiology concepts that are highlighted in West Physiology, a very classic and high yield textbook for pediatric intensivists. Rahul, I wanted to add one more point uh, to your excellent summary above. I typically do not escalate high flow more than two liters per kilo. Uh, that is my max high flow for an infant or a child or even an older patient. If they need more than that, I kind of go to other modes, uh, probably towards an intubation. So uh, talking about physiology, Rahul, what is dead space? Great question. So dead space is actually the volume of air that is inhaled that actually doesn't participate in gas exchange. Remember, gas exchange occurs at the level of the alveoli. And so when you're talking about dead space, why it's called dead space is that it is air that doesn't necessarily participate in that alveolar area. So this could be due to a couple mechanisms. Number one, it could be because the air is in the conducting airways, or it is reaching the alveoli, but those alveoli are poorly perfused or poorly ventilated. Basically, dead space means that not all air in each breath is available for exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. So what high flow does is it creates a washout of nasopharyngeal dead space. So it reduces the dead space and creates a richly oxygenated reservoir of air. This reserve in the upper airway is what the patient draws from with each breath, minimizing the entrainment of room air and also decreasing the amount of CO2 in the anatomic zone of the respiratory tree. Rahul, I know we talked about airway resistance as a decrease of airway resistance as one of the main mechanisms of how high flow works. Can you uh, uh, tell us something more about airway resistance in pulmonary dynamics? So West Physiology defines airway resistance as the change in transpulmonary pressure needed to produce a unit of flow of gas through the airways of the lung. So essentially, it is how much change you get across the alveoli. More simply put, it is the pressure difference between the mouth and the alveoli of the lung divided by airflow. So just to repeat, the difference between mouth and alveoli of the lung and the denominator being airflow. Bronchiolitis creates a decrease in airflow, thus increases airway resistance. This could be due to many mechanisms, but the primary one being mucus plugging. As high-flow nasal cannula increases flow, the denominator 
of our equation of transpulmonary pressure, which is mouth and alveoli difference divided by airway, as the denominator of our equation increases, it reduces the resistance in the airway tree. By providing gas flows that match or exceed spontaneous inspiratory flow rates, high flow nasal cannula minimizes inspiratory resistance across the nasopharynx. In a study published in 2009 in Respiratory Care, it was hypothesized that the resultant reduction in airway resistance, which high flow provides, decreases the work of breathing. And this was especially studied by measuring infant diaphragmatic electrical activity. Rahul, what is the last major mechanism of how high-flow nasal cannula helps in bronchiolitis? Absolutely. So we talked about dead space. We talked about airway resistance. I also want to add that high-flow nasal cannula reduces the energy expenditure required by the body to condition air. It does this by delivering heated and humidified gas. This also promotes less bronchospasm, which could occur with delivery of cold air. So Pradeep, in your experience, what are disease states we see in the PICU that are most amenable to high-flow nasal cannula therapy? Rahul, that's an excellent question. There are a lot of disease conditions in the PICU for which we can use high-flow nasal cannula. This include bronchiolitis, asthma, tracheomalacia, apneic oxygenation prior to intubation. So a lot of these disease conditions will definitely respond to high-flow nasal cannula. In these patients, I would recommend that providers start the high-flow nasal cannula and then ensure very close monitoring and frequent reassessments in order to ensure response as well as the need to escalate respiratory support. And like I've said before, if the patient is needing more than two liters per kilo of high-flow nasal cannula, that is the max flow we can give, and we need to think of something else. Absolutely. And I think that that is a threshold in which the use of high-flow nasal cannula may be futile and may actually delay escalation and respiratory support. And so this is a key take-home for this episode, that high-flow nasal cannula should not delay advanced airway management in a patient deemed to require immediate endotracheal intubation. This may include patients with acutely impaired mental status, risk of aspiration, or other need for airway protection. Rahul, thank you for highlighting this. High-flow nasal cannula should definitely be avoided in patients who have facial anomalies that preclude appropriate nasal cannula placement, like coenal atresia. Children who have active emesis, bowel obstruction, or even sensory issues which may create agitation may be relative contraindications for high-flow nasal cannula. Lastly, I would also not delay escalation in invasive respiratory support if patient does not have significant change in hemodynamics, such as a decrease in heart rate or oxygenation parameters, especially within two to four hours after the initiation of high-flow nasal cannula therapy. Absolutely. That really solidifies the need for frequent reassessment. Finally, high-flow nasal cannula therapy is also considered an aerosol-generating procedure. Thus, appropriate infection control precautions are required when it is being administered to patients with unknown or positive COVID-19. This concludes our episode on bronchiolitis and mainly the use of high-flow nasal cannula. We hope you found value in a short, case-based podcast. 
We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.